Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. Where we continue to follow the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden now. Those are just some of the scenes overnight as thousands of Americans gathered in celebration of Osama bin Laden's death. Former Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill says he has thought about the mission every day since that May Day in 20. From multiple conversations you had with Rob O'Neill over the past year and a half, how'd you get And you described that his head kind of exploded yes. when you hit I, him. Yes, I actually hit him three times because I shot him twice when he was standing and once on the ground. That is the fucking American badass. We are not going for fame and we are not going for bravado. We are going for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday morning, and then 45 minutes later, she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. I'm Rob O'Neill, and this is the Operator Podcast. I know you've read the books. I know you've seen the movies, regardless of what you've been told. However, this course is not impossible. People graduate. Look at me. I'm living proof. So I will never ask you to do anything impossible, but I will make you do something very hard. Followed immediately by something very hard, followed by something even harder, day after day after day for eight straight months, and that sounds like a lot to get from now to eight months from now, but don't think about it that way. That is not how you achieve a long-term goal. Do it like this. Wake up in the morning on time. Get out of bed and then make it. Make your bed the right way and then brush your teeth. You just started the day with three victories. That's three wins. Not a bad way to start a day. Make it to somewhere so you can get a full head count with your class and be on time for the 4 a.m. PT. There we are going to work you out. We're going to beat you. As I'm beating you, don't think about the pain. Concentrate on your next goal in life, which is making it to breakfast. After breakfast, your next goal in life is making it to lunch. After lunch, make it to dinner. After dinner, your next goal in life is doing everything you need to do to get back inside that perfectly made bed. And because you took the time in the morning to make your bed the right way, regardless of how bad today was, and it will be bad, tomorrow is a clean slate. Tomorrow is a fresh start, and when you feel like quitting, which you will, do not quit right now. That's your emotion. Quit tomorrow. If you can keep quitting tomorrow, you can do anything in life. And that is advice that I got from an instructor at Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, or as we say it, BUDS. BUDS is essentially the hardest school in the military. Pretty much the hardest military school in the world. It's very, very difficult to get through because at the end result, we're, we will be working together. If we go to war, we will be going together. 
And uh, that instructor was nice because he went through BUDS, as did every other Navy SEAL. You're not a SEAL when you finish BUDS, but every SEAL has been through BUDS. And this instructor, you know, when you get there, they're encouraging you to quit. And it's a very, very high attrition rate. It's something like 85% of the people who apply do not make it through. So this instructor reminded us that in the unlikely event that you make it through this course, we might be working together. And what that means is when he goes through a door in combat, whichever we, whichever way he goes, I need to go the other way to cover his back. If he goes left, I need to go right, and that means he does not need to worry about what's behind him because somebody that he trusts is covering his back, and that's it. He has his field of fire, and I've got the rest. But uh, every instructor has been through that. But this is a very hard course. Like I said, you're waking up early. I used to wake up very, very early to put on sunscreen because I'm a very pale person, and I need sunscreen, so I have enough to worry about. I don't want a sunburn to be one of them. But the days are really, really hard. It's a very difficult course. We've heard a lot about it lately. The hardest part, well, the hardest part that's famous of this course is called Hell Week. That's when you wake up on Sunday and you're going to start training the middle of Sunday and not sleep until Friday. You're awake the entire time, moving forward, carrying boats on your head, doing all kinds of stuff. I covered it in a few podcasts. A lot of other people who have been through this course have covered it. But that same instructor told me before Hell Week, and again, it's in your head, he said right before Hell Week started, you are about to go to war for the first time, and the enemy is all your doubts, all your fears, and everyone you know back home that told you you weren't good enough to do this. Keep your head down. Keep moving forward. And that's good advice. You might as well keep moving forward because what else are we going to do? But we might end up working together. And when it comes to a situation, we need to know each other and we need to trust each other. We need to know each one of us is willing to do anything to get the other one out, to cover each other's back so that we can all do a superior performance. I want to talk about one of these missions I was on to give you an example of how well we knew each other. It was in a gunfight that we were in in eastern Afghanistan, and we were taking down a house. Now, I need to describe to you what the houses look like in Afghanistan. The, this house in particular, mo most houses over there, most compounds, they're surrounded by a wall that's taller than a lot of the place, and inside are other houses that are connected. Some are not connected. Sometimes there's rooms that uh, are next to each other but not connected. Sometimes there's long hallways. The, the best way I can describe a house in Afghanistan, by the way, if you get a chance to go to Afghanistan, pass. Anyway, it looks like a crossword puzzle. Uh, we were in one of these rooms one night, um, probably about 2008, I would guess. And uh, we're clearing this house. We did get in a fight, ran into some guys on the way in, ran into some bad guys and some good guys. Because like I've said before, most people in a combat zone are just trying to get on with their lives. They're not really there to fight. But there are bad guys in some situations. So we'd been in a few fights. And uh, that means there are bad guys in the house. So, you know, it's, it's, it gets a little more intense. And... and you have a tendency to want to move a lot quicker when shots are being fired both directions. But if you want to be fast, slow down. So we're trying to slow it down. And this particular place, like I said, is surrounded by walls. It looks like a crossword puzzle. I found myself at the end. The last room is at the end of a long hallway. This entire place is open air. So there are walls, but there are no, uh, there's not a ceiling. You know, so you can stand on different stuff. It looks actually kind of like a shoot house that you would see on the range or something like that. I'm the number one man leading a small train down a long hallway. As I'm making my way down the hallway, I can see 
the end of the room. This is what we call a corner-fed room. So the wall in front of me goes straight down to another wall. Now, off to my right is another wall. So as I'm going to enter, I'm going to want to pan as much of I, as I can, clear as much as I can of that room before I have to commit. And there's about... 10% of a room that you're going to have to lean in to see it, and you need to make a decision of how you're going to do it. Do I just lean straight in? Do I duck? Do I, you know, what am I going to do? So uh, I'm getting ready to lean in there, and all of a sudden I heard three suppressed shots. Now, a terrorist fell out of the wall that I was about to enter. I can still see him right now with uh, my mind's eye. Um, bald dude, no shirt, white pants. And now he's hit three times. As he fell out of the wall, he dropped an AK-47 that was bigger than him. What he had done is he was anticipating that would be the last room to be taken down. So he dug a hole in the wall, and he's aiming an AK-47 at the wall. So that's about three feet away, and he's going to light up the first guy that comes in the room, probably the first two guys that come into a room, which has happened before. An AK-47 now is shooting... Um, 7.62, it's a, it's a big round, and I don't care how much body armor you're wearing. If you're that close at that range, he's going to take you out. So he fell out of the room, and I look up. And as cool as ever, one of our snipers was up on the rooftop. And he's looking down, and just to be a cool guy, which, which he is, he looked at me and he goes. Now, I could see him in my uh, night vision as I pointed at him, and uh, he's pretty funny. Misery loves company and uh, sometimes the most miserable spots bring out the biggest joke so he kind of looks down like almost like he's a range safety officer in a shoot house and he goes hey Nisro you're clear now that impressed me not because he was funny or because uh, he was devilishly handsome what impressed me the most is he could tell who I was by the way that I walked and by the gear that I was wearing. And that's how well we got to know each other. And so these are the people that you want um, getting, getting through this first course. And I, I got to reiterate that Bud's is a very, very hard course. And what's common is that um, we've all been through it. We as Navy SEALs have been through it. Just because you get to Bud's, just because you get through Hell Week, does not mean you're a Navy SEAL. Just because you graduate Bud's does not mean you're a Navy SEAL. Right now, they have a thing called SEAL qualification training you get through, which is another very, very advanced course. I hate to say it, but it's actually a lot more advanced than what I went through. I went through what was called SEAL tactical training, or STT, but now it's an organized course that when you do get done with that, you are awarded an insignia for Naval Special Warfare. So I would wager to say that once you start BUDS 1 one day, it's probably a solid year and a half, two years. Before you get a trident, which is um, what Navy SEALs wear on their chest, which is uh, what you wear when you become a Navy SEAL. And then you get to a uh, platoon at a SEAL team, and they're broken down by coast. The um, even numbers are in Virginia Beach, SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 4, SEAL Team 8 and 10. And then out west in Coronado are the odd numbers, 1, 3, 5, and 7. We've covered them before. We talked about a day in Bud's. Uh, I'm bringing this up because I have been getting questions about what it takes to get through BUDS, and people are saying, well, um, I've heard that BUDS is all mental. And you know what? It kind of is mental. It is mental, but everything in life is mental. Like I mentioned before, getting out of bed in the morning is mental. Your alarm goes off, get out of bed. Forget the snooze. Snooze is a crutch. Get out of bed. If you're late for something, the only excuse you should have for being late, and I've been late before, though, and I've used excuses. The only excuse you should have for being late is I didn't leave early enough. Splash water on your face and start to move. And get to where you need to go and then get your long-term goal. I've mentioned before, 
Um, if your short-term goal is too short, make it shorter. So every single day we would have that workout. We would have that long swim. It just completely sucks. Uh, I talked about the water, how cold it is, all kinds of the miscellaneous crap that goes on. But you have to pass certain amounts of tests in order to graduate basic underwater demolition SEAL training. One of the tests I want to bring up to give you an idea of it being mental is the uh, – I didn't talk about this, but I have talked to some SEALs since my last pod, uh, podcast – and one of the things they kept bringing up was the 50-meter underwater swim. There are certain tests you pass that once you pass them, you don't go back. The 50-meter underwater swim is one of them. Here's the way the 50-meter underwater swim works. You go to the edge of the pool, and you're looking down. It's 25 meters that way. It's 25 meters this way. Here's how you do it. Step to the edge of the pool. You jump in feet first. You go underwater, and then you do a front flip without coming up. You do not kick off the side. You swim. To the edge of the pool, 25 meters away, and that is where you know you can kick off. So do whatever kind of a flip turn, flippy bullshit or whatever. Just touch it, get your feet on a kick, and then stroke, and then glide. And then make it another 25 meters, bam, 25 plus 25 equals 50. If you get to 50, you pass the 50-meter underwater swim. For some reason, people psych themselves out about the 50-meter underwater swim. What if I can't hold my breath that long? Well, fuck it. Just do it. Just hold your breath until you can't. The way I was thinking of it was, uh, I'm going to get in there, go underwater, I can definitely do a flip, and then I can swim. My goal, my short-term goal is to make it to that wall. Once I make it to that wall, I want to kick down. I'm going to stroke and glide down, and I want to get as close as I can to the bottom of the pool, which is uh, like 15 feet deep, something like that. doesn't matter. If I can get one more pull and glide, even if I pass out, one of two things might happen. The instructor might see me and push me forward, my passed out body, and bounce my head off the wall and then bring me up and give me CPR, which means I pass, or I might just make it and I pass. Or I'll wake up to someone giving me CPR and tell me that I fail, and hopefully I get another chance. I guess that's three opportunities. But what's the point of wondering if I can't hold my breath that long? Well, fucking hold it as long as you can. So these are just you know some of the tests you go through, and, and what I'm getting at is a mindset um, you really need to let your, uh, let your mind do it. Short goals I can't emphasize enough because once your mind goes, your body's going to follow, and it's just that simple. It's, it's, uh, um, I'm going to quote people here and there, and I want to give proper credit when I do because I don't want uh, to be a stealer, but one of the sayings is the more you sweat in training, the less you're going to bleed in combat, and that's true, and that's why we make it hard. Um, and, and, and you don't need to like it. It's okay if you hate every second of it. But if you want to succeed, you have to do it. And, and that's as simple, the mindset is just telling yourself to hang in there. And you're going to fail. You're going to lose. And it's not over if you fail. It's over if you quit. Another great saying is, uh, I've never lost. I've either won or I've learned. And you got to remember that pain is temporary. I hope it's temporary. If it's not temporary, you might be fucked. But uh, some of the mindsets you get into as far as quitting, you know, people ask, when did you feel like quitting? And the answer is always. But when you quit, there is, you ring that bell we talked about before and you take your helmet off. I got a helmet right here. That's a red helmet for third phase. I kept mine along with some other exciting items that I collected in the Navy. We will talk about those later. But um, once you quit, you ring the bell, you put your helmet down, and your helmet goes into a quitter's line. And all it says on your helmet is you got your buds class right there, 
Mine was 208. In the front, you have your last name, O'Neal. And one of my little uh, moves was there's no way I'm going to ring a quitter's bell and then put a helmet in a quitter's line that has my father's name on it. You know, little stuff like that. It takes it takes as much energy to move forward as it does to blame others. Uh, a mindset too. I talk about morale quite a bit. If you can, if you can uh, st- keep yourself sort of happy, like the only thing better than no motivation is is false false motivation. Um, and motivation isn't necessary. You just got to do it. You don't need to want to do it. Like I was just saying. Um, but trying to keep light of stuff, trying to keep a sense of humor. One. Um, one of my, I was talking to my father, speaking of my father, and uh, I was mentioning a few things or whatever. There's a, there's a line in, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where they're trying to get away from the, I don't know if they called it the Popo or the 5 They're trying to get away from the law enforcement guys or whatever, and they got a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, I guess, got to jump off this cliff into a river. And, and one of them looked down and said, uh, well, hell, I can't swim. And the guy looks at him and goes, swim, hell, the fall's going to kill you. So uh, that's just that's just funny stuff. But um, keep your mind in it and don't don't give in to the negative feeling, the naysayers, the uh, the self pity. Self pity is with you all the time, and it's that devil that sits on your shoulder. And just don't listen to him. The negative attitude. If, if you want to know the negative attitude, and I'm going off on a tangent here, is um, when when guys do quit and they don't. Well, I'm sorry, guys never quit. Guys, um, they got kicked out because the instructor didn't like them, or. Um, or they beat someone up or whatever. The fuck guys that quit. Whatever. They go to X division. That's negative, negative attitude. If you want to know what it's like in X division, if you want to know the attitude, or maybe you shouldn't because uh, it could get some people suicidal, go to um, go to Reddit on the internet. Read what those fucking people say. Just negative as hell. They're not happy with anything. They're like the mother in The Sopranos. You can say anything and there's something bad about it. But, um, but anyway... Um, I have been getting some positive feedback um, on different uh, social media, and, and they've, I've been asked, um, what, were there any parts of Buds that I liked or, or what parts did I enjoy? I, I, um, I enjoy the water evolutions because uh, regardless, you're in San Diego, the water's going to be 55 to 60 degrees. The water's fun. Um, and in the pool, you know, um, if you're, even if you're tied up, you're still in the water underneath where you can't hear very well. You can hear stuff underwater, but you can't hear instructors yelling at you and they can't single you out. So you can concentrate on, um, exhaling the sink. You can concentrate on floating. You can concentrate on not panicking because once you panic, panic's going to get you nowhere. It's okay to be afraid, but don't panic because everything's going to go to shit when you panic. I like the ocean swims. A lot of guys didn't like the ocean swims. You would think I wouldn't have liked the ocean swims because, um, I'm not going to quit this course, but if I'm going to fail anything, it's going to be um, it's going to be because of that, because of an ocean swim. But I, I started to enjoy those things because I could kick, stroke, and glide. I could kick, I could stroke, I could glide. And no matter what we were doing, no matter what evolution, kick, stroke, and glide. And uh, you know, once you come up, you look at your partner; he's still with you, and you keep going. Um, so, uh, yeah, I kind of enjoyed those because you're off on your own. You're kind of doing your own thing. The runs weren't that bad. Runs are in your head. And you can, you can pass. I mean, if you can walk upright, you can pass the runs when they tell you to. It's, that's a matter of heart. I've mentioned that before. But the, the thing about uh, the ocean, though, you would think being from Montana and having not been in the ocean, uh, some guys admit it, and there's nothing wrong with this. They admit they're afraid of sharks. And people have asked me, well, are you afraid of sharks? And um, I would say, why? 
would I be afraid of sharks? I mean, I get in the water. I'm officially at the bottom of the food chain. If the shark's going to eat me, it's up to him. Or it's up to her. You know that female sharks actually get bigger than the males. But um, the bigger the shark you run into, the better because they're older and more experienced. The, the bigger sharks that are probably female um, are old enough to realize, experienced enough to realize that people are not on the menu. If people were on the menu for sharks... Um, there would be hundreds of shark attacks on people every single day. They don't like us. They're not trying to eat us. If you get if you get bit by a shark, it was probably your fault. You screwed something up. You got in between the shark and its food. You got into water that you shouldn't have, murky water and whatnot. Or you just ran into a bull shark, and they're just fucking assholes. But um, like uh, shark, there's a lot of great whites off the coast of um, California. That's actually a super highway in between Isla um, Guadalupe and Mexico, and up even I think as far as Oregon. Uh, there's sharks up and down there, and they would bite us if they wanted to. But the the sharks that I think would be the worst to run into, as far as well, as far as a great white, would be the juveniles, uh, because I think a shark at about nine feet, under ten feet long, isn't big enough to realize that it's a shark, and they're curious, like babies, like kids, and and uh, they don't have arms. Boy, that'd be fucking scary if they did. Imagine if sharks had arms. Um, so they, they, when they want to touch you, they don't. Um, they can't touch you. They need to bite you. That's how they touch you. And if you get bit by a great white of any, um, any size, it's going to be a bad day. That can be catastrophic. They hit in the femoral, uh, the femoral artery. You're going to bleed out. That's anyway. But uh, they're not going to attack you. They're, they're. Um, when people ask me if I'm afraid of sharks, I would ask them if they're afraid of coconuts. You know, as you're walking to the beach. You have a better chance of being killed by a coconut falling out of a tree than you do by a shark um, eating you. You know more people die a year by vending machines falling on them? <laughs> Fat fuck. <laughs> no, but seriously, vending machines do. Um, I think the average is um, 130 people a year are killed by deer. By deer. Yeah. Um, I think the, the only thing good about—they'll attack. You know, or you like to hit them in your car and a wreck. The only good thing about being killed by a deer is that they're herbivores and they won't eat your body unless you run into a deer that will eat your body, and that was just your time. Um, jellyfish, jellyfish kill more people in the water uh, every year. Hippos. I think a hippo, and look this up for me and let me know. I think hippos kill more people um, every year than, you know, more than sure. They, they kill more people than, uh, than anybody, than any animal. More people die uh, a year um, by taking selfies. A lot of people die uh, killing selfies, and that's uh, just being done. You know that more people, it's like, I, what's the number for it? I can't even find it. That More people die falling out of their beds than get killed by, sh- like falling out of your bed. I know that people always say, um, you know, when I go, I want to die peacefully in my sleep when thinking of beds, and uh, that's another joke I'm going to steal. I think someone said, yeah, when I go, I want to die peacefully in my sleep, not like um, the four other fuckers in his car who were screaming. But, um, yeah, so sharks aren't your problem. Just get in the water and enjoy it. They're not going to get you. Um, but, yeah, the kickstroke and glide, I kind of enjoyed that. That was, a, that was a peaceful time for me. Being in the water was nice. I still enjoy the water. I, you know, I don't like to get in the, the cold, cold water, but uh, I do enjoy, enjoy it. Um, but, you know, we, may, we make it uh, – we can make it suck. We make everything suck. Speaking of speaking – of, um, being in the water, um, the Navy, the military, the Army, we, we make everything suck. 
I'll get into some skydiving stories later. We can make skydiving stuff. Skydiving is basically the most fun that you can have, and we make it suck. Uh, scuba diving is awesome, but we make it suck. We, uh, when you scuba dive with us, I'm, again, I'm going off on a tangent. Um, it's bad enough to be the driver of a swim pair. You're always, you do everything in pairs when you're a Navy SEAL. One of the things that you do is um, when you're diving, you want to lock your little elbows into your side, and you're looking at what we call an attack board, and on the attack board there's a compass, a depth gauge, and a watch. And all you do is you, uh, you're counting your kicks and you're watching the time. You should know how much time it takes you to get um, a certain um, a certain distance. So this many kicks is 100 meters. This much time is 100 meters. It should be this. And then you add up the 100 meters before this one leg. And when you're doing a combat dive, it's like um, 1,000 meters here, and then you turn. That's why you have a little compass. And then you go 800 here, and then you do that. And you're turning, and you're trying to get your your kick down, your pace down to get to a certain spot. And that's the, the driver. Now, the guy that's his guide, his swim buddy, he swims above him, and that actually sucks because you have to put your hand on his head, and then you're just kind of pushing forward. You're looking forward, your hand's out, your hand's on his head because you're having him avoid swimming into obstacles, and you got to move him out of the way. But the thing that's fucked up here, you think about the humanity of everything, is the guy up here that's making sure he doesn't smack his head off the damn um, boat He's not hydrodynamic. He looks like an action figure, like with the you know the kung fu shit going on. And uh, the but the driver's hydrodynamic, and he's just finning, so he's going fast. This guy's up here like a motherfucker. He's trying to swim, do whatever. It just sucks the whole time. That sucks anyway. Like we've done that in Key West, and Key West is awesome. And that diving just sucks because you do the dive in the day and then you do the dive at night. In order, I'm getting back to my point of making it suck. Uh, we used to dive. Uh, SEAL Team 2, best diving in the world. We had that sign in, in, in sub-ops, diving operation. SEAL Team 2, best diving in the world, which means we're SEAL Team 2 and we're going to make it fucking suck. So we used to dive. We did, we did one dive trip up in Newport, Rhode Island in February. And I don't know if you know much about geography, but it sucks in Newport, Rhode Island in February, and we're doing diving. And the, like one of the shittiest parts of a dive is when you, uh, that in, you're not wearing dry suits per se, even though dry suits might be better, a wetsuit is, is it's just better for that environment. You're going to be finning so much and whatnot. It's a fucking wetsuit. Um, but the, the initial 7 to 10 seconds sucks because you jump in that water, and you got to let the water fill the neoprene, so that'll warm you up, and then you start finning. But that just sucks. You're not looking forward to that. The whole thing sucks. Now, we're diving. Um, uh, we learned this in BUDS. I'll get back to BUDS in a second. The closed-circuit scuba you know, the inhale, the air, exhale, goes through the soft and light scrubber, comes back in. So you're sitting there swimming, whatever, and um, you're cold, you're pissed, the oxygen does something to you where you're going to get angry at people and you're mad at your swim buddy because he fucked up and he couldn't keep up, so you swam into a goddamn uh, uh, pier or a ship, whatever. Um, everyone's angry and you all get pissed. And the thing is, too, when you're kicking, especially when you're driving, you're not saying anything and you're kicking, so you can't help yourself. You're just singing. And if you get, God forbid, you get a song stuck in your head on a four-hour dive, like uh, one of the, oh, my God, God forbid if Rick Astley was playing Never Gonna Give You Up, and before I dive, you're going to hate it. I had a trick because my newer guys, when I was a diving supervisor, you're the guy that has to give them the check. Like before you do a jump, there's a jump master. You check all the shit, make sure you don't die. For diving, there's a dive soup. The dive supervisor, he checks all the whatnot. And one of the checks that you got to do is you got to put them on, you call it on bag. So you put your actuator in your mouth, you turn it on, you hit the thing, and you got to inhale 
the oxygen and exhale through your nose. You're getting rid of the nitrogen because you want 100% oxygen going through your thing so that you know you don't die, which is awesome. If you live through the dive, it's always great, even though sometimes on a dive you wish you died. But um, as you're doing this, they're on the surface, so you're making sure they don't pass out. And then as soon as there's 100% oxygen in their body, you're going to send them in the water as the dive soup. And, I, and I'll see if you get this joke because – as if it's not shitty enough that it's February, it's Rhode Island, it's probably snowing, and they're getting in the water for um, uh, probably closer to five or six hours because a lot of it's spent on the surface or whatever they're doing, doing turtlebacks because it didn't suck enough being underwater. What I would do to them is right before I'm about to send them in the, uh, the water, I would say, all right, guys, have a good dive. Oh, but real quick, rising up, splash. So, um, yeah, so that was the dive thing. I was getting into um, what sucks. We don't worry about things that you can change. Uh, don't sweat the things that you can't change. And, um, yeah, SEAL training was hard for that reason. SEAL training is hard. So here's something I want to talk about. After I finished BUDS, finished jump school, I went to SEAL tactical training, which is a long course about tactics where you're learning how to be a Navy SEAL. One thing that I realized there is that a lot of people dip tobacco. As soon as I got to the range, I started to dip. You know, you're at the range, you dip. When you finish a skydive, you dip. When you go to a brief or a debrief, you dip. If you're giving the brief, chances are you dip. So I dip tobacco. I was at the point of the ritual where even in Iraq and Afghanistan, I would wake up early so that I could eat breakfast quickly so I could have a dip. Pure ritual. The issue is for almost 20 years, I was dipping tobacco. I love the ritual. I don't like the tobacco. So if you're dipping right now, I recommend trying Black Buffalo. It is a tobacco-free dip, and it's available in a few different flavors. Uh, some of them do have nicotine, and that'll come with a warning that tells you there's nicotine in it, but there's still no tobacco. And the other one, um, the other kind is just 100% ritual, zero tobacco, zero nicotine. It's made from food-grade products, plants, and it has the texture and the taste of the dip you love. If you're dipping now and you're looking for an alternative, I highly recommend that. This, this uh, Black Buffalo has won four-time Best New Products by third-party publications. Made in the USA for U.S. consumption. Born in the Midwest, raised in the South. It is, like I said, made in the U.S. Very proud supporters of the U.S. military, first responders, anyone that dips. I highly recommend this. Check out blackbuffalo.com and use the promo code THEOPERATOR, one word, and get 15% off of your first purchase. And I highly recommend it. But it's hard for a reason. They want to see who will be willing to push themselves as far as they can when it's time to do the job. Because the job as a Navy SEAL is not to win a tough mutter. The job as a Navy SEAL is not to run triathlons, and it's not to be the fastest swimmer. The job is to fight. The job is to kill. And the job is to be able to do it and to follow your buddies doing um, the mental, The mental part of the game that can push your body through it physically, you got to try to find the... Uh, Try to find the the good spot in everything, because it you know even if you have to even if you have to uh, lie to yourself and say it's fun. Uh, a good example is right before we started Hell Week. I keep going back to Hell Week because for some reason that gets brought up quite a bit. Uh, we were doing a pool evolution that was designed to see who will panic, called the Beehive, and the Beehive is um, supposed to simulate a shipwreck. That's all nonsense. They take all the students. It's 
pre-hell week, so there's 150, 160, whatever, guys. They put us all in the middle of a pool as tight as we can, so you're basically nut to butt, shoulder to shoulder. And uh, they want to see if you can swim, if you can live. So you can't tread water because you're so close to each other. And because there are still people in there who are prone to panic, they start to panic. And they want to breathe because for some weird reason, and I've seen it in training and in combat, people have this crazy thing called the will to live. And uh, they get a little bit greedy. So some guys will start to push other guys by the shoulder so they can get their heads above and breathe. But that is pushing their friend down. If that friend who's being pushed under the water is prone to panic, he will start to panic, start flipping out, start grabbing legs, pulling people down. It's a big shit show. Uh, and uh, I think it's pretty much unsafe, but they do. It's called the Beehive. I found it was easier just to relax. I don't know if it's because, you know, I talk fast, but I think slower. I think fast and I talk fast. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe I'm lazy. Who knows? I found it easiest just to exhale and sink like they taught us in drown proofing, go to the edge of that beehive, come up and just chill out at the end. And, uh, you know, wh- wh- why waste your energy panicking if you don't need to? But on one of those smart uh, moves of mine as I was coming up, I kicked someone else and I broke my pinky toe and my foot. And then I started thinking to myself, well, shit, it's Friday afternoon. I just broke my pinky and I'm starting hell week on um, Sunday. And I'm in a conundrum now because, I mean, if you just quit hell week, all right, you gave it a shot and you quit hell week. But if you quit hell week because you said, oh, my pinky hurt, you're going to become known as that guy for the rest of your life. You're like the little pinky guy. So I can't quit now, but I tried to get optimistic once we got out of the pool we got to do the bud shuffle over to get some uh, some chow and then over to the barracks. When I put my boot on and tied it, I realized that's pretty much as close as a splint as you can get for a little baby pinky toe. Anyway, you're not. I don't think they're going to splint up a pinky toe. They're just going to tape them. So if I tape them and wear that boot on, I guess I get to wear a boot for an entire week, and hopefully my pinky will heal. Maybe the salt water, Mother Ocean, has something to do with it. So that's optimism. I'm going to be optimistic about my broken toe instead of feeling sorry for myself. Then, another concern I had, I mentioned sunscreen before, now that I'm going through Hell Week, we're awake the whole time, I'm not carrying sunscreen with me, what if the instructors don't have sunscreen, and uh, I get to burn, well, the good news is, you're going to be under a boat, the entire time, that's going to suck, I'm going to lose a lot of my hair from the chafing, because that damn heavy boat is on all seven of our heads per boat crew, Uh, but the good news is, I'm under a boat, which means I'm in the shade, so try to stay positive. Hell, we completely sucks, but it's getting you through. It's getting you through that mindset because, like I said, our job is to go to war, and I need the person who's behind me. When I'm not covering my back, I need to be certain that the guy behind me is covering my back. I need to be sure of the sniper who's up on the wall, the guy that was prepared enough to have his weapon sighted in in the right spot, anticipating our movements to know we were there because um, anything you do in life can get you killed, including nothing. So you might as well be prepared for the stuff that you can help. And you need to be able to make that decision. You don't need you need to be able to respond to something. I always tell people, don't react, do respond. You don't need to be lightning quick. It does help in some situations to be able to do it, but you need to make that decision. I want the person who's mentally strong enough in combat to make that call. And that's what this training evolution does. That's what this uh, training course is. That's what a lot of these selection courses are like to make sure we're getting the right people in the right places to do the horrible job that, you know, people don't want to know what we did. Uh, even in training, uh, a training you can get hurt. One of, the, one of the scariest things that can happen to you in training is to get a low-speed malfunction on a skydive. There are, you know, there's several different malfunctions when you um, 
Well, in and in, when I was jumping, it was a, a rip cord for a military rig. When you pull a rip cord between that cord, between the um, the three rings on the back, all the the lines coming off and the risers and and the nine cells of the parachute inflating. A lot of stuff when you're wearing different gear, different rucks, different weapons, carrying ladders, which I've done, uh, jumping equipment bundles, guns, you can get a, a bunch of different malfunctions. Now, a high-speed malfunction is one thing. That's when you're falling. That's when Mother Earth has her arms out and she's welcoming you to the ground because one of my morbid sayings about skydiving is no matter – the good news is no matter how bad it goes up there, you're going to land. And you have the rest of your life to figure out a solution. But a high-speed malfunction is one thing because it's kind of just your tactics take over. You look at your thing, you realize whatever type of malfunction doesn't work. If you need to push your lines away, pull the um, cutaway pillow, pull the ripcord of your reserve, and by that point it should pow. And you're the uh, parachute rigger who doesn't get enough credit saved your life. You owe him a case of beer for packing your reserve. That's a high-speed malfunction. One of the scariest ones is a low-speed malfunction. That's where you're not going as fast as you could. It could be uh, some sort of a line twist over your back. A couple of your uh, cells didn't inflate or whatever. Different stuff. But you're going slow enough to think maybe I could live through this crash. I don't want to cut it away because you realize you have two parachutes. When you cut one, I'll let you do the math. You got one left, and that's it. If that one doesn't work, you're going to land. Anyway... Uh, one of the guys who can make the decision and do it in the right place when it's the hard decision to make, but you don't have to love it. You just have to do it. It was on a, a high-altitude, high-opening jump in Arizona. So it's a training jump. Or if I was in the 90s, I would say I was on this op in Arizona. Anyway, training jump in Arizona, um, and we're we're um, perfecting our high-altitude, high-opening. We're our hey-ho jumps because – we are pretty sure when we find a tier one target in Pakistan, that's how we're going to insert. So we're going to get really, really good at that. So we're practicing our hey-hos. I happened to be the lead jumper at the time. I was the first guy out of the the airplane, the aircraft, whatever it was. And then it is my job to gather up all the jumpers behind me, and then I'm going to uh, get them in a train. I'm going to find the drop zone visually. I'm going to do a quick glide ratio with my limited instruments, which is altitude, distance, Um, speed, heading, can we make it type stuff. And other guys are behind me, and they're going to get in a stack, and we're trying to narrow the stack down. And ideally, I'll say 10 feet back and 10 feet up, probably not that close, but, you know, we do go to schools like that, and we learn from the best in the world how to fly our canopies. So we're trying to do that. This is a day hey-ho. I'm in the front, and then there's a dude in the back. And the dude in the back happens to be one of our uh, bundle guys. So he's jumping a bundle, and I mentioned – I mentioned vending machines <laughs> killing people every year. To give you an idea of what a bundle is, a bundle is the size and weight of a vending machine, except it's connected to your chest by a 10-foot tether, and uh, you're going to fly that thing in. And the reason you have that is because there's going to be some extra gear sometimes that all the guys can't carry, the extra radios, the extra bombs, the extra batteries, the extra shit. It's going to go in a bundle, and one of the tandem masters, bundle masters, is going to jump that. Now, in order to be a tandem bundle master... You also need to be a jump master, and you also need to be a pretty experienced uh, experienced guy. I, I, was a, I was a tandem bundle master, and I'll get into those stories a little later. They're pretty funny. They're pretty scary. Uh, anyway, 
as we're doing this, I'm the lead jumper in front and the tandem guys in the back with another jump master who's the rear, and their job is to take up uh, like a head count. Because we learned, we were development group, we're developing tactics, and we always want to make sure no matter what we're doing, that's one of the points of breakout of Hell Week, is to train leaders how difficult it is to keep a head count. And in chaos, you want to know where your guys are. You don't want to leave a guy behind. You got to know where they are. So we're coming up with tactics of um, how we're going to do it. One of the tactics, I'm going off on a tangent here, was, well, when we open, just have the guys check in, in order. One's up. Two's up. Three is up. Four's up. Five's up. You know, like that. And could go back to, like, jumper number 37 is up. And then the, the troop chief or the team leader, whomever, the jump master who's in charge will know that they're all up. And that sounded like a good idea. Everybody check in in order. Because, we're, I mean, we're not yelling at each other. We all have radios on because jumping is only one it's like a way to get there. We're still going to fight, so we are wearing our, our radios. We're not just screaming in the air, hey, one's up. Um, anyway, we have the radios on, and it sounded great. I wasn't on this jump, but I, I, I heard it. It was a training jump. It might have been one of the selection classes, and it was something like this. If I screw it up, um, forgive me. But it makes sense because the way it sounded, I guess, I guess jumper number four had a high-speed malfunction, and um, – you, there's not a lot you can do for anyone when they have a malfunction at high speed. Uh, it sounded, I guess, on the ground like one's up, two's up, three's up. Oh my God, it's not like a fucking high speed malfunction. I'm gonna fucking. Five's up, six is up. So anyway, um, we learned that that wasn't uh, a good way to do it because he, the guy was fine. He lived. I wouldn't tell the story if he didn't, but he lived through that. But anyway, I'm going back to my hey-ho where I was the lead jumper. Day jump so you can see each other, and we got a guy in the back. One of the jump masters is the tandem master, and he spots one of our PJs, one of our uh, pararescue guys, Air Force, stud. Um and they go through a selection course, too. Everyone goes through selection courses. Delta's got one. Ranger's got one. Green Berets, uh, uh, PJs. I think theirs is online, but it's tough. Um, anyway, um, so one of the PJs has a, a malfunction. I'm getting to the point of where you need to make a hard decision now. He's got a malfunction that's called a line over. So his, uh, the lines that connect him to his parachute, you know, obviously they go to the bottom of the parachute. They connect you. That's what's suspending you. Uh, one of the lines is up and over the middle. That's called a line over, and that's a, a low-speed malfunction because at this altitude, his canopy is open, and it's fine right now because, you know, we jumped at 15. We pulled right away, so we'll say we'll say we're at 10,000 feet, okay? So 10,000 feet separate you and the ground. Uh, I'm doing my thing. What we're doing now is the guy in the back, he's just counting the jumpers. He's counting what he sees, and that's how we get the head count. He, he can tell if someone – whatever. Uh the, the tandem master sees that the PJ has line over. So we're, you know, we're doing whatever, and I will give them as the lead jumper updates on where we're at, what I'm passing, how we're doing, blah, 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 this bullshit. And I hear the tandem master say to the PJ, because he counted up, and he goes, hey, jumper 10, you have got a line over. You need to cut it away. Now, what that means is he's got a good canopy right now, and that means... And you can look down, you can see your boots, and then you see the ground 10,000 feet below you. <sighs> okay, I got to cut this away. Ugh. So he comes back and says, no, 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 my canopy's good. I'm, I'm holding, and here we go, jumper. You have got a line over, it's fine right now, but the closer you get, it's going to collapse. I don't want you, and you don't want you to get to a position where if you cut away, you're too low for your reserve. Too open. You need to cut that away. Now at this point... 
it's a day jump. We're all experienced jumpers. I remember pushing my thing back and twisting them so that now I can my canopy can head that way, but I'm turned around. It's daytime. I can see. I want to watch what's going down. Everyone's like watching, and we hear the um, we hear the PJ come over his radio and he goes, "Oh, okay." And he chops it, and that fucking thing flies off. The reserve just pops open. He comes over, his push to talk, and just goes, I'm back, motherfuckers, right? So that's awesome. So uh, we landed, and it was funny. Uh, and, th- I mean, that's a guy that if I got to make the decision. He made the decision. And that's a life-and-death call, even though the rigger did a really good job packing his reserve, and it worked. But in order to keep everything fun, uh, every single day, not every jump, even though you should go over them, every single day we do have a jump master brief just to talk about everything. And uh, what I learned as a teacher, as an instructor, as a guy giving the brief, as a jump master, I will look around the class and as I'm going through the many, many different malfunctions and the many, many procedures and what you need to do, I'll randomly call on people, not that they don't know what they're talking about, just um, I want to make sure they, <laughs> they're they listening and that they know what they're talking about. And uh, you know, you'll know, you say to people, okay, now what are your cutaway procedures? Look, grab, look, grab, pull, throw away, pull, throw away. You know, canopy check, whatever. And I called on somebody, not the PJ, but one of my other guys. I go, all right, what are your cutaway procedures? He stood up and he goes, look, grab, look, grab. Oh, okay. I'm back, motherfuckers. So have fun with it. Um, you know, nobody outranks safety. Be safe. So that is a hard course. And the end result of these hard courses is to get someone that you can put on the battlefield who is willing to fight the enemy. And you know they have the mental toughness. And you know you have the person that no matter how bad it sucks, they're going to keep fighting. That's where the never quit comes into it. We can't forget, especially uh, we're, we're coming up on the anniversary of 9-11, the 21st anniversary of getting attacked by a group of terrorists, but also by an ideology that wanted to kill all of us. And they hit us. And 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 uh, part of that story I've brought up before, the first people that faced them toe-to-toe were the passengers on Flight 93 that decided after voting, which is American as shit, decided after voting they're going to fight them, and they did it, and they fought them. And that's... that's uh, after something like that happens, we're going to need to send people who will go find these terrorists and can inject fear into them. Um, we, we lost that for a while. It, it used to be about the triathlons, about the, um, the endurance races. The quarterdeck at SEAL Team 2 is the first office that you see. The quarterdeck is like the main part of a ship when visitors come or... When phone calls are made, the quarterdeck answers it and directs their calls and whatnot. And uh, We used to post on the quarterdeck. When we'd work out at SEAL Team 2, on Monday was a circle PT, core stuff, push-ups, pull-ups, and then like a base tour, a run, a three- or four-mile run. And they would post the scores. This is before 9-11. They would post the scores, top ten guys. And then Tuesdays, regardless of the weather, it was a two-mile ocean swim. And they would post the top ten. And it stays there all week. And then Wednesdays is the O courses where you run three O courses, you do a loop, three O courses back. They would post the top ten. God forbid if you were a new guy and you weren't in the top ten, you would they would hammer you there. You'd get bad evals. Because before the war on terror, they were they were basing a good Navy SEAL by the way they worked out. And that's okay. Whatever, fine. But Navy SEAL should not be judged on how they work out, how well they work out. It's, it's important. It's discipline. But BUDS is there 
as a um, selection to see who was willing to fight the enemy face-to-face. And I'm not talking about a top 10 score. I'm talking about who was willing to go meet the enemy, fight them face-to-face. And uh, once the bullets started flying both directions, I mean, there are people out there that were really good at the O course, but they uh, they didn't want to go to war. And there were guys that, that didn't go to war. There, uh, uh, there's guys that skipped the wars. But, uh, but uh, Buds is... Um, we're making warriors, and that's the point here. You can't get lost in all this political correct nonsense. This uh, anniversary coming up, you need to realize there are still people out there right now who want to kill you. And they want to kill me, they want to kill us, and they don't care which bathrooms we want to use and what our preferred pronouns are. They want to kill us. And, and that's it. So um, that's what Bud's is supposed to be, too. It's not a friendly course. It's not a, it's not a gentleman's course. I want, to, I want the best of the best. I don't give a shit. If you can run a triathlon, if I take you to combat, can you carry me out? If I get shot wearing my body armor, carrying my gun, all this shit, can you carry me out even if I'm dead to bring me home? If I'm wounded, can you carry me? That's all I give a shit about. I don't care how you got there. But um, that's one of the measures of the medal at Bud's. I'm going to read an article that came out recently because, unfortunately, a student died in SEAL training this year. And an article was written a few, uh, maybe a week ago, written by the New York Times, so there's an agenda. And I've been asked about it because, obviously, um, um, they want to blame everything that they can, If uh, it seems like, in the face of America. But um, it, it is a sad story. I, I've been asked about it, so I want to address it. I'm going to read a little bit of it. It's about a guy by the name of Kyle Mullen. He's from New Jersey. Um I never, I never met him, but I guess he's a complete stud athlete. And I'm going to bear with me as I read it to you so you, have, um, so you can know where I'm coming from here. So um, it says, Kyle Mullen always had the natural drive and talent that made success look easy until he tried out for the Navy SEALs. The 24-year-old arrived on the California coast in January for the SEALs' punishing selection course in the best shape of his life even better than when he was a state champion defensive end in high school or the captain of the football team at Yale. Like I said, this is impressive. But by the middle of the course's third week, a continual gut punch of physical and mental hardship, sleep deprivation, hypothermia that the SEALs call Hell Week, the six-foot-four-inch athlete from New Jersey was dead-eyed with exhaustion, riddled with infection, and coughing up blood from lungs that were so full of fluid that others who were there said that he sounded like he was gargling. The course began with 210 men. By the middle of Hell Week, 189 had quit or been brought down by injury, but Seaman Mullen kept on slogging for days, spitting blood all the while. The instructors and medics conducting the course, perhaps out of admiration for his grit, did not stop him, and he made it. When he struggled out of the cold ocean at the end of Hell Week, SEAL leaders shook his hand, gave him a pizza, told him to get some rest. Then he went back to his barracks and lay down on the floor. A few hours later, his heart stopped beating and he died. That same afternoon, another man who survived Hell Week had to be intubated. Two more were hospitalized that evening. The SEAL teams have faced criticism for decades, both from outsiders and their own Navy leadership, that their selection course, known as Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, or BUDS, is too difficult, too brutal, and often, and too often causes concussions, broken bones, dangerous, dangerous infections, and near drowning. Since 1953, at least 11 men have died. 
for just as long, the SEAL teams who perform some of the military's most difficult missions, including the lightning-fast hostage rescues and the killing of high-level terrorists like Osama bin Laden, have insisted that having a bare-knuckle rite of passage is vital for producing the kind of unflinching fighters the teams need. Without buds, they argue, there could be no SEALs. Privately, they talk of training casualties as a cost of doing business. And then sort of they go into some other things. Uh, David Goggins, a, a complete stud Navy SEAL, uh, he just says this is the world we live in. He's not the first and he won't be the last to die in this line of work. That's kind of in a nutshell. Uh, the article goes on to say, Buds is hardly the only dangerous selection course in the military. Many Army Special Forces soldiers and Air Force pilots have died during training, but few if any courses have so high a rate of failure. After Seaman Mullen died, the, SEALs, the SEAL teams appeared to try to deflect blame from the course and frame the incident as a freak occurrence. Though Seaman Mullen had coughed up blood for days and had needed oxygen, the Navy announced that he and the man who was intubated were not actively training when they reported symptoms and that neither had experienced an accident or unusual incident during Hell Week. The official cause of death was bacterial pneumonia, but Seaman Mullen's family says the true cause was the course itself, in which instructors routinely drove candidates to dangerous states of exhaustion and injury, and medical staff grew so accustomed to seeing the suffering that they failed to hospitalize him or even monitor him once Hell Week was over. So that is the nutshell of the article right there. Um, and it is, um, you can see kind of where it's leaning. It's leaning into, uh, it's the course's fault, right? So the article goes on, and uh, this has to do with his family, with his mother. I'm going to continue reading the article. They killed him, his mother, Regina Mullen, who is a registered nurse, said in an interview. They say it's training, but it's torture. And then they didn't even give them the proper medical care. These guys are treated worse than they're allowed to treat prisoners of war. In a nutshell, that's what they're saying. Now, here's an issue. Um, I don't know what it is like to lose a child. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what it's like to lose a child in the military, in training, or in combat. I do know and am in contact with a lot of Gold Star families, and my heart goes out to them. Um, I can't imagine the anguish. Um, Regina Mullen had this complete stud athlete. He died in training. But I think the problem is with a little bit of the misinformation that's being given out here. I've been to Buds. I have friends who have recently been instructors. I have videos of Buds. It's not torture. It sucks, but it's not torture. They're making it sound like they're starving them and they're dying of dehydration being treated like prisoners of war. A normal day at Bud's is done after dinner. You have three hot meals a day, and there's vending machines in between evolutions. You can eat a lot. When I used to be done at dinner, I would leave the base because you're not being followed around like boot camp, and there's not uh, military police watching your every move. There was a McDonald's on base where we were. I would go eat burgers. I would go to Carl's Jr. or something like that. Eat extra burgers, as much sleep as I want. You get weekends off. Did you know that? Buds has weekends off to recover. It's not torture. Hell Week sucks, and you're awake from Sunday to Friday. It does suck. You're not going to McDonald's, but you're eating four meals a day. There's at least two times a day for rest and um, hydration where you're eating and drinking and feeding, and there is a constant presence of medical personnel. They're, they're just, they're, they're, they're being, parents are being forced by people with an agenda to talk about something they really don't know in order to make them, 
to make them look bad. You, 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 medical personnel are checking you out. Uh, there, I have videos of guys standing in line at medical, warm, with their medical records in their hands, getting wait to get checked out. They get their feet checked out. They get their eyeballs looked in. They're made sure they're okay. And then they get sent out. And it sucks some more. Yes. You're not being tortured. You're being fed a lot. You're spending a lot of time running the chow, a lot of time in the chow hall eating, and a lot of time running back from chow. You're just moving forward. That's the entire point. It sucks. It is far from torture. I want to take a second to talk about something that's very important to everybody, and that's a good night's sleep. You don't need to be a combat veteran to toss and turn at night. You can be concerned about something that didn't go well today or worried about something that might not go well tomorrow. And uh, one good way to get a good night's sleep is through Ghostbed, who's been a loyal sponsor to the Drinking Bros podcast for over five years now. They're very, very comfortable. They last forever, and they're made in the USA. Every mattress has a 20-year warranty, sometimes a 25-year warranty, and you can actually try them out for 101 straight nights, and if you don't like them, you can return them. No harm, no foul. The best part about Ghostbed is the cooling technology, so if you're sleeping in a hot place, it can cool you down. It offers uh, bundles for everything you need, so you, you don't even really need to think about it. Just choose from their four mattresses and then pick your bundle. So whether you just need a mattress and a frame or you want it all like they have cooling pillows and sheets, you can get the best bang for your buck. Right now, Ghostbed is offering... Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base. Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base or 30% off everything if you use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. You can buy a mattress for like 35 bucks a month, zero down, zero financing plan for up to 60 months. Go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. But here is the meat and here's your agenda. They were able to uh, jump on a family's grief for this part. I'm going to continue reading the article from the New York Times. Still, the prevalence of drugs at Bud's has some men in the top reaches of the seals deeply unnerved. Not just because drugs may have contributed to the death of a sailor, but also because they see their spread and the lack of discipline and order it implies as a threat to the entire SEAL organization that could grow in unpredictable and ugly ways. Sailors who enter the program, bolstered by steroids and hormones, can push harder, recover faster, probably beat out the sailors who are trying to become SEALs while clean said one senior SEAL leader with multiple combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Stop. Um, you're going to need to notice how it said one senior SEAL leader with m- multiple. Okay. I hate hearing multiple. Fucking how many was it? Multiple is two. Multiple is 15. How many did you do, you, su- you senior leader? Um, anyway, sorry. Um I'm just giving you the the anonymous source. It always seems to be an an anonymous source when there's bad stuff going on. 
Uh, I will continue reading. The inevitable effect, he said, is that a course designed to select the very best will end up selecting only the very best cheaters and steadily fill the SEAL teams with warfighters who view rules as optional. I'm going to say that again. Who view rules as optional. Rules. There we go. That's, that's, who, I, that's who I want to fight with. The rules. The rules guy. <laughs> I'll have a gun. Make sure you bring your fucking clipboard. Anyway, I'm going to continue. Uh, he's being quoted. Um, what am I going to do with guys like that in a place like Afghanistan, said the leader? A guy who can do 100 pull-ups but can't make an ethical decision. A fucking ethical decision. Okay. This is the guy who sits in the talk while he's uh, the closest he'll ever get to a purple heart is burning his lips on a coffee as he's yelling at people that they can't shoot rockets into a cave because we can't prove there aren't women and children in there. An ethical decision. Okay, there is a time and a place. Trust me, we are the good guys. We're not going to be out there fucking people up. But I certainly don't want a pencil pusher like this who can't even say his own name, who's talking about... Um, when, 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 when we go to war, like I mentioned earlier, you need to carry me out. You need to carry me back to my family. I give a fuck what you need to do to get me there. I give a fuck if you're following the rules. Can you do it? Period. Not that hard. Keep it simple. So, I'm going to continue reading a little bit more. Uh, the Navy has so far been officially silent about the discovery of drug use at Bud's. Details of Seaman Mullen's death and subsequent drug sweep, many of them reported here for the first time, are based on interviews with Navy leaders, medical staff, enlisted SEALs, and recent Bud's candidates. Keep that in mind. All of them spoke on the condition that they not be identified by name because they are not authorized to comment publicly. <laughs> End quote. You know that there are uh, random drug tests all the time. The Navy does this all the time. <clears throat> and they've gotten even to the point where they're doing hair follicle tests, and that's for not necessarily performance-enhancing drugs, but other stuff that you shouldn't be doing because, you know, I don't, need you, I, I don't need you all fucked up when you're out there either. I'm just saying sometimes you need to do what you need to do in order to get the job done, especially in a fucking war zone because we're, we are there not to, uh, well, <clears throat> we're not supposed to be there to be diplomats. We came over there to fuck you up and that's it. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to beat you and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get my guys back. Now, some of the stuff. Now, see, the problem here is that um, Seaman Mullen died, and it's got to be the course's fault. Um, I mean, they they did a they did a sweep. They found stuff in a in a shared car, not necessarily his car, but they did find paraphernalia and performance enhancing drugs and stuff like that. And and um, you know, I, that, that bad shit can happen if you use it. And I'm not I'm not condoning the use of it, but I am I am saying that those fucking people that roll around and instead of trying to get the best product out there. All they want to do is blame the course. And now they're saying that, well, they're torturing these kids. And then some of the people that they're interviewing that said, uh, they, they didn't make it through Hell Week. They're guys that quit in Hell Week. And then they're saying, oh, I should have made it, but I didn't make it because I'm running on stress fractures. I was chafing. They were torturing me. And they start giving bullshit about, yeah, it's, it's a long week of underwater demolition and all these, no, it's not tactics and underwater demolition. Put the fucking boat on your head and walk. Go that way. Go straight for a few days. We're going to fight because I want to see who's not going to quit. <clears throat> now we're getting to the point where this is turning into political correctness. Now, they're because they're, they're drawing on people's emotions, these guys, that, I mean, there are people out there right now saying, well, people aren't enlisting in the Navy because you don't get a choice if you don't make it because they're going to send you to the fleet and then you're going to be a boss's mate. And what, you know what? 
okay, then that's part of the Navy's problem. Maybe if you go be a boatswain's mate because you weren't good enough to be a SEAL, why don't you become a really good boatswain's mate? Why don't you take advantage of your chief, what he's doing? Learn from him. Why don't you take advantage of online courses that the Navy provides? Stop fucking whining. It takes as much effort to succeed as it does to stop there and whine, but that's what they're doing. They're going to make it worse, and they want to get it to a point where we're going to just bring in civilian auditors so we can watch the course and make sure it's safe. And all that's going to do is dumb it down. Basic underwater demolition SEAL training is one of the last bastions of equal opportunity. You have an equal opportunity to show up. From there, it's on you. You don't need to make the course easier. China's not going to care if it's easier. I, I've been in fights before. I'll get into this when I've got more time. On a mountain in Afghanistan near the border of Pakistan in a daytime shootout with people who looked like me, they had red hair, they had red beards, but they're shooting belt-fed machine guns at me and at us. And they're yelling, God is great, in Arabic. And if you see a white guy with a red beard shooting a belt-fed machine gun at you, yelling in Arabic, that's probably a Chechen. And I don't give a shit if you're in a gunfight or if you're dealing with a mechanic or a bookie or whatever, if you have a Chechen in front of you, it's serious business. And I've been in positions where this day is going to end one of two ways. I'm going to win or I'm going to die. And my fucking training doesn't need to be easier to get me out of that situation. It's just that simple. It's a never quit attitude. When, when we went up after Marcus Luttrell, and I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth reiterating. You know, we were awake for days hiking in the hills, June 28th, 2005. It's hot up there. It's humid up there. It sucks up there. There's bad guys everywhere. We've lost people on that mountain. And you start to realize this is why training is so hard. Because if I was going to quit right now, where the fuck am I going to go? I'm just here. And laying down and dying is not an option. Quitting is not dying because if you lay it down and die there, someone's going to find you. They will have bad intentions and you're going to die in a really, really bad fucking way. And that's torture. But that's the end result. You got to master the basics. You got to keep it simple. The first part of becoming a Navy SEAL is basic underwater demolition SEAL training. And what we're trying to do there, we need to get people who are willing, willing to kill. People who are going to go meet the enemy in their own houses, their own place where they feel safe and fuck them up. That's what we're trying to get here. And there's arguments now that BUDS is harder because they're losing more people. Fine. I don't care. But Hell Week is now the third week, not the fifth week. If that's harder, whatever. We, just, we need that mindset of a warrior. Failing is not quitting, but quitting is always failing. You can't get that mindset. Of, the course is too hard, so let's make it easier. That's nonsense. You're not going to be in life, especially in combat. You're not going to be challenged when you're ready, when it's convenient. It's gonna, you're going to be challenged when it sucks, and you've got to be willing to face that. And you need to bet the rest of your life on it. That's what Buds is doing, and we don't need these people walking around with those uh, clipboards wondering if we did it in the ethical way, if we were nice about it. You see that a lot now, too. Were we nice enough about killing these people? That's fucking bullshit. I mean, that's even some of the point, too, that you'll see in some of these some, you know, some of these debriefs, some of these after-action reports. You know that a lot of these officers only know what we tell them. Unless you were there at the time, you only know what you were told. 
And certainly if you're 7,000 miles away, you didn't see it. You don't know what happened. I've been in situations before. We'll dive into this too. That sometimes we tell the powers that be just what they want to hear. I've been in situations. I've said stuff about my guys to make sure they didn't get in trouble. Let's just make sure it looks okay. Sometimes justice is served. And you don't need to know how we did it, but we did it. And that's the end result of a course like this. I want people that are willing to do that. I want people that can, uh, that can get in the fight, stay in the fight, and work when it sucks. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to end on a, uh, a negativity note. I get a little fired up, you know, murder, shit like that. Um, but uh, speaking of uh, the never quit attitude, and we talked about... Um, we talked about uh, Rangers, Green Berets, Delta Seals, Seal Team Six, different selection courses, and that. Um, and then you know across the pond, uh, the Special Boat Service, the SBS, the SAS. I've worked a lot with Special Forces in Europe, uh, and the the camaraderie and the sense of humor with training like that. That's why you shouldn't dumb it down too, because when you go through shit together, you really get that bond. Um, and uh, I saw this when I was a, a team leader. I was at Seal Team Six, and we were working with Rangers. And we got in the there was so there was these two rangers that went with us and and rangers are very very capable of taking down targets we've all you know we've all seen the movies rangers are fucking badasses they they but when we were using them on a few ops in, in Iraq this is Iraq this is 2007 one of the best deployments I've ever been on I need to do a an episode on the deployment that never was man that was a fucked up summer but um what we would do is we would have a few of our teams you know groups of six to eight dudes that would take down houses different parts of a neighborhood and then we would put some rangers out as blocking positions so they would carry like the automatic weapons the belt fed machine guns and uh, whenever we were in a fight like trying to make a silent entry on a house and we'd hear the rangers going hot outside whenever you hear the rangers going hot it's about to be on because the Rangers aren't fucking around. And uh, so we had these two, but it wasn't a fight every night. Keep that in mind. You're not, you're not fighting every single night. There's a lot more uh, what we would call dry holes than, than you realize. But um, we had these two Rangers that were in the patrol, and one dude was tall. And we'll say he was like 6'3", big tall dude. Well, not tall for the, you know, for basketball. He's tall for a fucking soldier. So he's 6'3". He's carrying a, um, a bazooka if you will, a rocket called the Carl Gustav, and I believe it's uh, named named after Carl Gustav. Uh, I think it's an 84-millimeter rocket. So he carries a rocket, but the guy behind him in a rucksack is carrying the rounds. So he's got these these backpacks, this backpack full of rounds. It's got, like, different kinds in there, Uh, high-explosive rounds that are great. He's got a loom rounds that you can shoot in the air, and it lights up the sky, lights up the whole battlefield like a big candle. We also learned if you're shooting a loom round at a house, you're going to win that fight. Um, but uh, we didn't use the goose every single night, but that poor guy had to carry the rounds every single night. And there, there are spots in Iraq, there are swamps and whatnot, and there's irrigation ditches where we would actually, um, you know, you're walking across, and uh, even though we're Navy SEALs, I don't want to get my feet wet, so you hop the little thing or whatever. I turn around, and this guy carrying the ruck full of heavy-ass bombs, <laughs> rockets, uh, he, would, he was so over it. Every single night we're going out, and we're humping in and humping out. He just realized hopping, it's not worth the energy. He would just trudge through the damn water, get all wet and whatnot, and he's just miserable every single night. But one night, we got in a fight, and um, these insurgents, we watched them. We, you know, we got engaged in a, in a fight, and then these insurgents moved to another building, and I, uh, I grabbed my team over, and they're, they're shooting at us. We're shooting at them, and 
certain kind of building, so we need to get authorization to start engaging this building. We got authorization to enter, and I was like, you know what? They're shooting at us. I think we should open with a uh, an HE from the Goose. So I call up the Carl Gustav guy, and I call off his buddy. They come up in a pair, and I'm like, I want you to launch a rocket in the front of that building right there. So he, they put it in, whatever, and then uh, they blast. So it blows open the uh, blows open the door, explodes inside. I'm like, you know what? They're still in there. Hit him again. So he take they take another round out of the heavy backpack. Boom! He blasts it again. I'm like, oh, you know what? Cool. Hit him one more time. So he hits him again. I'm like, we're gonna get ready to enter in the. The, this short kid with all the weight, he goes, hey, uh, senior chief, can we hit him with one more? I'm like, yeah, fuck it, hit him. So they hit him with another one. And then we walk inside this um, inside this building. And it, uh, yeah, like I said, there's parts of combat that don't need to be described. The best way I can describe it is it looks inside this building like right before we went in, um, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and Mike Myers went in there. And I don't mean the guy from Saturday Night Live. And it was just a bloodbath. We won. But we get back. The guy's happy that's carrying the rounds. He doesn't have um, doesn't have to carry a lot of heavy shit. He's got a couple left just in case in the pipe. Uh, anyway, so we get back, and now the the six foot three guy, the the tall ranger, he's uh, I think he's like a, he's a specialist, and he's he's gonna get promoted eventually. So I figured because we're gonna debrief, because since now we have officers around us, you have to debrief everything. You better have a pre-brief before you go out and brief to go out and then have a debrief about the debrief and then talk about your debrief, so we can all talk and that fucker can 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 jot it down or whatever. So I say to the ranger. Um, why don't you debrief this for professional development? Because you're you're going to need to know how to brief stuff because you're a ranger and you have officers who want to hear from you. So, so he gets up there and and the you know remember the name of the bazooka. So he's going to debrief whatever building we're in. He said, "Well, here's this building, and uh, the first four guys to make entry were all Carl Gustav." <laughs> like, he gets it. <laughs> Next chapter. So I mean, the point of that was uh, obviously um, it's better to to. Have it not need it, then need it not have it. We had that kid that carried those friggin' Gustav rounds forever, and he finally got to use them. We did win the fight, and because he was able to carry those without bitch. Well, there's a difference between whining and bitching. He would bitch once in a while, but he wouldn't whine about it. But we needed them, and uh, getting the proper authorization, because like I said, we're ethical, and uh, we shot that building up and kind of lowered the threat threshold, if you will. Um, but the point of that whole thing was um, we can't, dumb down the uh, courses to get the warriors that we will eventually need there. It's like, um, I think at some point in the 90s um, in the NBA, right after I think Larry Bird retired, Larry Bird was a pretty kick-ass basketball player. They actually shortened the three-point line in the NBA to make it closer. And they asked Larry Bird, uh, what'd you think about him making the the three-pointer a closer shot? And he goes, shit, why don't you give him three points for every shot? You know, you don't need to dumb it down. Um, you know, keep it keep it difficult, keep keep it hard because when you need hard people, they're going to show up. So that's my thoughts on that. And um, remember, you're never out of the fight. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.